0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 10th, a Saturday morning on the west coast of the United States in San Francisco. My guest. Today, whose name I will reveal in in a few seconds, uh, suggested in our pre-interview chat that San Francisco is the center of the world. Uh, perhaps for people living in San Francisco, I'm not sure if it's the center for anyone else. But the center of the world in this morning's newspaper um, is Charlottesville, Virginia. It's been the center of the world symbolically in news terms on and off for the last few years since the riots of 2017. Uh, America and Americans are now in the business of removing statues. Uh, Robert E. Lee's statue has been formally removed. Uh, uh, Robert E. Lee, for those of you who haven't been reading your history books, being a, a famous, I wouldn't say distinguished, perhaps notorious general in the American Civil War. Here we have the image of the crane's taking away Robert Lee uh Robert E Lee's statue uh Americans have always been I think ambivalent about the taking down of statues uh uh it's not just uh Lee's statue that's being taken down it's also Stonewall Jackson uh here's Stonewall a rather Stonewall looking character um, what's interesting to me about, and I, and I certainly don't really want to talk too much about racism and the Civil War today. What's interesting, though, about Robert E. Lee is he is indeed in for, for all his uh, for all his sins. He is a product of an American meritocracy. Lee was the, according to his Wikipedia page, at least the top graduate of the United States Military Academy. Uh, Stonewall Jackson at least judging from his uh his face was also um uh not from the aristocracy from the meritocracy who he also graduated from West Point um uh, Jackson uh sorry Lee uh was also related um uh, he was the husband of Mary Ann uh, Lee who was the great-granddaughter of George Washington but of course What has always distinguished America, and and Alexis de Tocqueville saw this more than anyone else when he visited America in the middle of the 19th century, the French aristocrat, uh, and he wrote it in his book, Democracy in America, was uh, Americans' hostility towards the very idea of aristocracy, of people somehow being born into privilege uh, by birth. Um, The taking down of statues in America then has always been in some ways I think guided by a hostility to aristocracy. The issue of aristocracy and meritocracy are back in the news. We have this ongoing debate in America and indeed around the world about the value of meritocracy and aristocracy and my guest today on the show, my old friend Adrian Wooldridge is a very distinguished um, British journalist and historian has a new book out the aristocracy of talent, how meritocracy made the modern world. Uh, Adrian, I don't want to put you in the middle of the whole American racism and civil war thing, but um, can people like Lee and Jackson be considered products of the American meritocratic system? Not in my book, really. I think that's... um... The South in the
1: United States um, is an exception to the more general meritocratic principle in that the South is the closest America has to a society based on landed aristocracy um, and inheriting privilege over time um, on on the basis of inherited plantations, which of course are, are, are based on slavery. So the South has always been something of an exception to the mainstream meritocratic tradition of of American life. I wanted to go back to a very interesting point that you you made uh, uh, also, which is your point about America always being from the very first sort of uncomfortable with aristocracy. I would say that America has always been from the very first uncomfortable with the notion of inheriting um, privilege from one generation to the next. But, but it's also important to remember that the Ameri- the, the founders, the, um, the people who made the American Revolution, were really making that revolution in the name of one sort of aristocracy rather than another sort of aristocracy, that they argued that you wanted to get rid of the aristocracy of land and inheritance, but replace it with uh, an aristocracy of virtue and talent. And this is something very central to the thinking of Jefferson, Hamilton, Adams, uh, Madison. Uh, and they do talk quite a lot about aristocracy, meaning not an inherited position, but a position that is earned by virtuous, talented, meritorious people.
0: This is the the polemic, I think, at the heart of your book. It's, it's very erudite, as all your work is, The Aristocracy of Talent, How Meritocracy Made the Modern World. It's a history in some ways of meritocracy, from Plato to NATO, but on the other hand, there is a there is a sharp polemical point at, at the heart of the book, which comes out in your subtitle: "How Meritocracy Made the Modern World." Adrian, you're arguing that um, we never would have had modernity without meritocracy replacing aristocracy. Is that fair?
1: Absolutely. I would say also that the the revolution which gave rise to to, to, to meritocracy, that, that gave rise to modernity, is fundamentally a meritocratic revolution that for most of human history, society was organized in terms of inherited degree. You inherited your position in the social order. It was organized around certain leading families, dynasties, which ruled the world because they inherited their positions. And positions were allocated on the basis of patronage, um, allocated on the basis of whim. They were bought and sold in the open market and they were allocated on the basis of nepotism. So the world that that we now live in is very, very different from the world that most human beings have lived in. It's based upon a certain set of principles which are extremely unusual, extremely hard to create and I think are actually also very easy to lose.
0: In our age where we seem to be increasingly obsessed with the issue of, of race and of racism, um, how central was race to the pre-meritocratic age? Uh, I think many people would think that people like uh, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, supporters of a, of a race-based hierarchical society, they were typical, but I'm guessing they weren't. Most most aristocracies weren't based on race; well, they were they based more on 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 land and on um and on birth? Well, they're not based on race,
1: and you have to understand that in a country like England, for example, the number of people who came um, from different races um, who 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 were black or brown was pretty small throughout English history up until the post Second World War era. So you have a society in which a landed elite um rules um in which though that elite consists of of, of, of of white people who are ruling over other white people uh and race is very um unimportant to that um you uh, also-
0: Adrian, what, how, how would you respond um we've had a number of shows about the history of colonialism oh. lots of debate about that how would you respond to somebody who might say well it's all very well about meritocracy making the modern world in the UK, and it's true there weren't a lot of black and brown people in living in England in the 17th and 18th century. But if you take into account the history of colonialism sure. and the way in which the Western experience uh, and progress and technology was all built on that, um, race may be more central than you acknowledge.
1: The race, race becomes um, not more central. Race becomes more important over time. So, a lot of what I'm talking about in my book is, let's say, the Middle Ages. And that is a time when you have a society of priority degree and place, a society of lineage, uh, and a society of subordination. And that is a society which is pretty enclosed and is pretty much a society which interacts with other European countries, but doesn't interact with many societies outside that. Now, um, from from 1600 onwards, when you get the full creation of things like the East India Company, things begin to change because Britain begins to explore the world uh, and comes in contact with China, comes in contact with uh, India and begins to establish a colonial empire, also true, of course, of uh, of the Netherlands and uh, Spain in, in different ways. And then the history of meritocracy and the history of colonialism begin to intersect in various extremely interesting ways. I also wanted to put one more footnote to your other notion of, uh, or, or of um, your your other question about race uh, and slavery. Of course, if you go back to um, ancient Greek 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 times, you have a situation in which you have a society based on slavery, which is not a particularly um, it's a slavery of non-Greeks. It's not a, a particularly racially based system of slavery it's just, it's, it, anybody who's not Greek is is is, is 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 subordinated in in various ways through 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 conquest so so slavery and racial uh, politics haven't always been identical that, that they they have been since the colonial period
0: Adrian um if this book had come out 20 30 40 years ago the aristocracy of talent how meritocracy make the, made the modern world in spite of all your erudition and fine writing. I think the book would have been received with a certain disinterest. People would say, yeah, well, that's obvious. Everybody knows that. But today, meritocracy has become one of the most polemical issues. Uh, We've had Daniel Markowitz, the Yale University law professor who wrote a book against the American meritocracy, suggesting it's making everyone miserable. Michael Sandel's also been on the show talking about the consequences of the ideal of the common good uh, in a meritocracy. So, it, in many ways, your new book, The Aristocracy of Talent, um, is a reaction to the work of people like Sandel, um, Markovitz, and then um, uh, our old friend David Goodhart, who has a similar theme. You talk about these guys at the beginning. What's happened? Why is meritocracy under such assault in the uh, in the twenty twenties?
1: Well, I think meritocracy to some extent has always been under assault. If you go back to the book that gave the name uh, to, the, to, to, to meritocracy, it was it was Michael Young's book called The Rise of the Meritocracy, published in nineteen fifty eight, and that book right. was actually a polemic against meritocracy. He wasn't saying meritocracy is rising. That's great. It's a wonderful thing. He was saying meritocracy is rising. That's terrible. And his re- his thinking about why meritocracy was terrible was that meritocracy um, is just. He says that meritocracy gives everybody their just desserts. People who are clever end up at the top. People who are not so clever end up at the bottom. And that's an intolerable society. At least under the old aristocratic order, if you ended up at the bottom, you could put it down to bad luck or to prejudice or to or, 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 or to the lack of the, 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 the draw in terms of who your parents were, once you actually have an efficient sorting mechanism, you can't blame anybody else. So the people at the top are horribly smug. The people at the bottom are horribly depressed. And that's a horrible society, but it's also a society built on deserts. And he said that what we have to do is get rid of equality of opportunity as the founding principle of society and replace it by equality of results a much more equal society. So there has always been a suspicion that meritocracy isn't very nice as a way of organizing society. But to get, what we're seeing now, that was, a, I mean, Michael Young to, was a great leftist. He was one of the authors of the 1945 Labour Manifesto. He was a great progressive intellectual. What we're seeing now is something which is very, very uh, further advanced than that. That meritocracy is disliked by the left, for Michael Young style reasons, uh, and also because it's regarded as a sort of um, a disguise for plutocracy, a justification of inequalities whose origins lie not in ability, but in in, in power and privilege. It's disliked by the the right, by the Tucker Carlson's of this world, who say that it's an excuse for the the, uh, smug, credentialed overclass to look down on everybody else. But it's also disliked by some very sensible, and uh, thoughtful academics who occupy i would say the the, the center like uh markovits and, and Sandel, who are saying that there's just too much of it that the universities that they're in charge of like yale and harvard have become you know places where everybody's elbowing for position and place and they're creating a society that doesn't have much of the common good so what's happening at the moment is that you're getting a critique of meritocracy from every single element of the political spectrum Uh, not just from the right or from from the left. We haven't seen that before. And it's not something that's just a game being played by intellectuals. It's something that's having real consequences in the way that universities go about selecting their their places or in the way that education is organized. So Lowell School, if it's it's pronounced Lowell uh, in San Francisco, is getting rid of um, selection by academic testing to replace it by a lottery. Boston Latin in Mm. Boston is doing the same thing. Um, You're seeing universities downgrading SATs and using what they would regard as a broader set of um, selection criteria. You're getting classes for the gifted being downgraded or abolished right across, uh, across America. So you have a generalized revolt against meritocracy, a revolt which is having big impact in the way that America is organizing itself. And this is happening at a time when America is facing unprecedented competition i.e. from China, and when China is doubling down on meritocracy, not trying to not trying to um,
0: downgrade it. Um, Adrian, you begin the book, like so many serious intellectual histories with Plato's Republic, and nothing really has changed. Plato recognized all these problems and did away with the family as a way of creating a genuine meritocracy. And you know, some people have seen Plato's Republic as the foundations of liberalism, others as totalitarianism. The problem, though, seems to me in America and in the West generally, is we've become all too obsessed with family. Our caste, our upper caste, yours and mine, and probably most of the people watching this, we're all part, not of the 1%, but of the 10 or 15% of highly literate, globalized elites. Um, And we're taking family all too seriously. Here was a, a piece in the New York Times, which has become the you know, the paper of, of the new meritocracy, as well as the critique of meritocracy, about a packed schedule doesn't really enrich your child. I know you've got daughters, I've got children as well. We're all too obsessed with our kids. Isn't that the foundation of the injustices of contemporary meritocracy? Is we're not willing to allow our kids to fail, which is why we're increasingly rigging the system and creating. Um, an economic and cultural aristocracy today.
1: It's the hoarding of opportunity, right? Um, and uh,
0: the guy at Brookings, what's his name? Well, uh, uh, there's um, Richard Reeves, Richard Reeves, right? He's terribly right about this. But why I started with Plato
1: uh, is not just because it's an absolutely wonderful book that that that, that replays yeah. being read over and over again, but that Plato grasped that there's a fundamental tension between human nature and meritocracy, um, in the sense that human beings crave a society which is governed by, 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 by the best people who can govern it, but they also crave a society in which they can hand and transmit privileges to their children. Uh, And so there's something in human nature which says to us, well, let's have meritocracy as an abstract ideal, but let's make sure that we can rig the system as much as possible so that our children do as well as uh, they can. Plato absolutely recognized this. And he said that the only way to deal with this problem is to break up the family. So the family is no longer the organizing principle of society. So he wanted to replace families with state-sponsored orgies so nobody knew where their children were. I'm all in
0: favor of that, Adrian. How would you feel about that one?
1: <laughs> so the children can be brought up in common. But he also said that we, you must get rid of private property because private property will always be something that, 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 that people will want to accumulate. If they have a family, if they have a home, they will try and accumulate property. Now, these are very far-fetched solutions to this very big problem. Um, but they nevertheless, you know, he's right about the problem. We see nepotism. In his
0: fix, would it be fair to say, um, Adrian, that Plato yeah. understood all this? I mean, it's not that yeah. complicated and nothing much has changed. And what Plato understood was for the foundations of this to work, you have to have a noble lie. So in his Republic, he invented the lie that people of the upper class were born yeah. with, a certain uh, uh, a certain uh, physical quality i think it was silver in their hand um and the problem with meritocracy is we've we, we're not we're in the business and you write about this brilliantly in the book both from the left and the right and the, perhaps the person who most epitomizes this is the french historian michel foucault we're always in the business of pulling down of wow. of exposing all uh, untruths and to have a viable meritocracy, you need an untruth at the heart of it; otherwise, it just can't work.
1: Well, I think that what you need to do is to create a system whereby you do reasonable battle with some human instincts, um, and those—the uh, the most important of those human instincts, I think—is to try and do really well for your children. And the best way to um, get around that uh, and to prevent uh, the meritocracy from generating into an aristocracy is to have a system whereby you have lots of educational selection and lots of educational selection on the basis of tests which it's very hard to game because those that doing that will provide avenues of upward mobility for people who come from outside the elite. And it's only if you have those avenues of upward mobility from people coming outside the elite, That you will exert sufficient pressure on those elites that you'll get downward mobility as well so i don't think you need a noble lie but what you do need is a real attempt to make a reality of equality of opportunity you don't take people away from their families but you create powerful schools which can inspire people who come from you know, families which aren't really interested in education, inspire them to do extremely well academically. That They can search out and educate people from right across society. And that's the only way in which um, you can guard against the dangers of what I call in my book, Pluto meritocracy, which is the marriage of money and merit to create a a self-perpetuating cast of winners.
0: All books have an element of autobiography in them. Um, Adrian, you're the product of, I guess a, a meritocratic system. Your Wikipedia page suggests you were educated at Balliol College, and you did all the right things. Uh, you, you became a fellow at All Souls, the height of the meritocratic intellectual system. Uh, you studied uh, in Berkeley, down the road from me. Now you, you and then you became the Economist's um, Washington bureau chief. Now you write extensively for them. Do do you see your life as an example? of how meritocracy was works. Were you born into privilege yourself? No, no, first of all, I wasn't born
1: into privilege. My parents were, 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 were you know, fairly regular teachers, but I went to a grammar school and grammar schools uh, were institutions, entry to which was based on the 11 plus, which was essentially an IQ test, which I took, at I think at the age of 10 or 11. I went to this school, which gave me a good academic education. And I arrived uh, at Balliol College, Oxford, uh, with quite a lot of other people who who'd had similar sort of uh grammar school backgrounds and the, I think that the, the 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 culture of Oxford when I was there was very much one determined by this notion of IQ and effort um and um you know grammar were you school a gar- were
0: Adrian were you a girly swat?
1: yeah i was a, i was very much a girly swat. as uh, boris
0: johnson put it
1: absolutely i was that very thing and i was just going to go come on to boris because um during my time, just after I went to finish my time at grammar school, grammar schools were abolished in Britain and replaced by comprehensive schools. Um, and so that sort of ethos of uh, people coming from regular backgrounds, going to grammar schools, getting into Oxford, was really diluted by the fact that you you went to a comp- that you just either went to a comprehensive school or you, you you went to a public school. And the ethos, as I said, Bailey when I was there was a grammar school ethos. I would say now. Six, seven, eight years later, the ethos of Balliol <clears throat> and of Oxford more generally was much more the ethos of public schools. So Boris was around in 1985, I think, at Balliol, five years after I'd left, um, very much e- Eton, the Bullingdon Club, which is a club for...
0: But, but as you note in your book, I mean, Boris Johnson was a scholarship student at, at Eton. Yeah. So it, yeah. it, he he's as much, I mean... A lot of people don't like him for one reason or other, but he's a product of a meritocracy as well. He's a product of a very
1: exclusive form of meritocracy, which is a King's Scholar at Eden. Um, and I think it's a sort of uh, meritocracy, but it's a meritocracy with a very aristocratic flavour. And I think what the grammar schools did was to much broaden the notion of merit. And also Adrian, are the- you
0: nostalgic? I mean, we can't go back to the grammar schools. Yeah. I'd like to think yeah, yeah. forward for one of the things about the book yeah. I really like, where yeah. it's... Uh, was its conclusions about fixes. You now, we've had yep. lots of shows about tech. Uh, you and I have talked over the years about the impact of technology on society. We had Georgia Zakhar Dikis, uh, Cyber Republic, reinventing democracy in, in the age of AI. Uh, we had uh, James Sussman talking about the future of work in a, in, a, in a post-job society. How conceivably could changes in technology change the nature of our meritocracy? How yep. could it be used to make society fairer, less aristocratic?
1: Yeah, let me apologize for being, uh, getting lost in the world of grammar schools. I think that this debate does become a bit too nostalgic and it's very important that those of us who believe in meritocracy and selection and the rest of it don't just look backwards to a golden age, well, or I, well, I do think there was an age of very significant social mobility after the second world war, but cast our minds forwards. And I think technology can be used for a lot of those things, because what we what we need to do is try and discover talent and nurture talent. And both those things can be enormously um, aided by technology. Technology can be used to find talented people. It can also be used, once you've found those talented people, to enrich their education. And it can be used also to distribute tab- talent more widely in the population. And let me give you two examples, I think, which are really interesting in this case. One is The Israeli elite uh, battalion or force, elite intelligence service, which I I believe is called 8020, which um, is exceptionally successful, um, which provides a lot of people, uh, a lot of, you know, sends people to Google and all of these um, cutting edge companies without even the need to go to university um, because they're so sought after, these people. And it looks, one of the things it does is to look for the high scoring gamers people who are hanging out in arcades who are scoring incredibly well at various games of visual dexterity. And it says, you know, once they see that these people are doing really well, somebody's name keeps coming up on the the channel, it tries to recruit these people. So it's looking around for signs of intelligence amongst people who are not formally academically very interested but can obviously achieve uh, great feats like scoring the top score over and over and over again in some video arcade game. Or another thing, I think, which is very interesting in terms of technology. It, uh, uh,
0: um, uh, Adrian, there are, we don't have video arcades anymore. Everyone has their own video arcade on their phone. Oh.
1: Well, however, however they go around searching for these people, I may be out of date in terms of the arcades. Uh, but they, 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 they deliberately cast the net wider in terms of searching for people. Um, and another thing I think you can do, I, I believe this has happened in Rhode Island one of the things that uh, distinguishes the upper classes from the lower classes is the amount that they talk to their children. Mm. Uh, They provide their children with just, you know, unconsciously with an enormous advantage of just hearing a lot more words. You know, you can see big, big differentials by education in the number of words. So what they decided to do in Rhode Island was to take people who are less educated, who hadn't done so well at school, But of course, as everybody does, had great ambitions for their children. And they provided them with devices which allowed them to monitor how much they were talking to their children and told them, just make sure you get higher and higher scores on this thing. Just talk to your children as much as possible. Look at your scores and try and raise it as high as possible. And I think that that is another way in which you can use technology to sort of nudge people into interacting verbally with their with with their children much more. So there are all sorts of ways in which we can give data, use data, big data, and the rest of it to yeah. sort through the population for signs of ability and to nudge people into giving better nurture for their young children, infants, indeed.
0: I think that nudging though would be interpreted by somebody like Michael Young in a in a dystopian way. But uh, it's definitely an interesting idea. Um, Adrian, we had uh, last year your, uh, your economist colleague, Edmund Fawcett. He has a couple of wonderful books on conservatism and liberalism, and he has this great quote. He said, Well, politics chess, liberals had white, they moved first. Conservatives had black, they countered liberalism's opening moves. In time, the initiative changed hands. Conservatives who began as anti-moderns came to master modernity, for the right was in telling ways the stronger Contestant, do you think that's true when it comes to the assault on meritocracy? Uh, Trump and and Boris shown here—they're masters at attack. Whether they're example, whether they're part of the elite is 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 self evident. But they're masters at attacking it. Have the conservatives are the conservatives leading the way? And is this anti meritocratic ideology is it going to become more and more central? Do you think to politics in the twenty first century? I think it's
1: absolutely vital to politics in the 21st century. I think that both Trump and Boris, particularly Trump, actually, um, understood that there's a great deal of discontent with the cognitive elite on the grounds that the cognitive elite is smug, on the grounds that the cognitive elite is self dealing, and on the grounds that the cognitive elite is quite often messed things up, particularly in the 2007, 2008 financial crisis, and that by criticizing this elite, they could seize power in the name of the the people and the less educated people in particular. Trump did that for a while. Boris did it on a more sustainable basis. But if you look at the voting coalitions that that both people put together, they're very different from the traditional conservative voting coalitions because they include a large number of people who didn't go to university, who didn't do particularly well at school, and who feel that this credential-based cognitive elite is somehow um wrong and, and not working very well and i think that that could be the politics of the 21st century now, trump obviously blew up but you know there'll be many more trumps that's why i believe that rescuing meritocracy before it's destroyed is absolutely vital um and so what i'm trying to do in this book is to say look meritocracy is very important guarantees economic growth in the way that non-meritocratic systems do don't it it provides social mobility in the way that non-meritocratic systems don't but it's degenerating and we need to make sure that it can be rescued from its own sort of dark sides and i think and and
0: the dark um, speaking of the dark side of it the the darkest side i think um is what the young uh, i don't know if you know him blake smith he's done some excellent work he's a young historian at the university of chicago he calls the new elite the the woke meritocracy. I had him on my show uh, on wokeness and the meritocracy in the Ivy League and according to Smith, uh, you know University of Chicago is no Berkeley or Harvard it's not on the left but the the new elite are being taught that they're suffering they're they're they're, they're getting this kind of Rousseau style education in 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 suffering um. The elite is not them being taught to be an elite in the American universities. They're being taught that they're victims of of one kind or another. And I think it's coming out in the mentality of young people. Um, Do you think, uh, as an extension of this, do you think there is a a broader crisis in the elite in the West? We've had all sorts of people on the show talking about this crisis. Jonathan Rauch, um, George Packer, they all see fixes, but they don't really address this core question of a crisis of an elite and an unwillingness of an elite to acknowledge its own privilege and come to terms with that and and and, and be accountable for it
1: oh absolutely let me that's, that, 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 that's several questions in one and they're all fascinating questions I mean one thing I think that we're seeing at the moment is is Michael Young said that um, IQ plus effort equals merit. And I think what we're seeing now is IQ plus effort plus wokeability equals merit. In other words, <laughs> that you're that, that's a that, new word.
0: Excellent word, Adrian. Wokeability.
1: Wokeability, wokery. That's in other words, elite institutions are selecting people not just because of cognitive ability, not just because of their effort, but also because of their willingness to sign up to the woke agenda. So if you look at McKinsey, it's full of all of this stuff. If you look at the elite universities, they're full of all of this sort sort of stuff. And you have to sort of leap over the woke bar in order to get admission to these institutions. Now, is that a good thing? Um, Saying some some of what woke stands for is absolutely right. You know, the, 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 the worry about racial injustice and the rest of it is absolutely right. So to some extent it's a good thing, but also it can be used as a mechanism of exclusion. That people who don't use the right language and this woke language changes all the time, people who don't identify the same, the right problems, and these problems seem to change all the time, will be excluded. So you could actually construct a conspiracy theory whereby a sort of traditional patrician elite is reinventing itself from being the old wasp aristocracy to being a new woke aristocracy and using the language of woke in the same way that it used the language of, of you know, rowing and character and the rest of it in the past in order to exclude people who aren't the right sort of people uh, and i you know that's obviously the case with chinese uh, with, with asian americans being excluded for not being the right sort of sort of people so wokery can you know is almost is almost a mechanism mm. for preserving the power of traditional elites in disguise the second is this notion of desert meritocracy says that you must deserve your privilege in society. Uh, And how do you deserve your privilege? I say IQ plus effort, but this is a new sense of deserving it because you feel everybody's pain. So this new elite sitting there at Harvard and the rest of these places are saying, I deserve to be here. I deserve my privileges because I'm exquisitely sensitive to all the world's injustices and that's a very odd sort of uh, ruling class so there's all sorts of things at work here
0: yeah um, it's it's a it's a great it's a great book uh, adrian and it's it's a really important subject and, and 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 there are serious warnings about this i mean it's all very well going after the woke people and that can be funny yeah. and irritating at the same time but there are some serious consequences of this and you note too at the end of your book uh, we had Kishore uh, Mabubani on the show recently from Singapore. He's someone who's always speaking about, as you know, the I guess the victory in some ways of the Chinese system over the U.S. system. Does this do you think speak in civilizational terms of a structural decline? Um, does it is it is it in reality a reflection of the of of the rise of of the Chinese model and system and culture and the decline of the West?
1: Not yet, but perhaps soon. I think it's very important to remember that the people who invented meritocracy on a mass scale were the Chinese. That's, let's say in the ninth century when England was being ruled, was ruled by people with names like Eric Bloodaxe, China was ruled by sort of Mandarin scholars. And the the Mandarin system of selecting people for, you know, a life in the Imperial Palace um, was in, in, covered for much of the history of China, about 10% of the population, about 10% of the population did these exams to move up the civil service. So it's a huge Mandarin system in China, very deeply rooted in the country's culture, very successful for a long time, but it collapsed because it was sort of frozen in aspic, as it were, the Chinese system just didn't change they, it was a system based on testing people's ability to do the, to, to to recite and to talk about the the, um, the Confucian classics, and it was that was the same in 1905. It just didn't take into account modern knowledge. Now, what China is doing at the moment is reinventing that system, but this time they're not looking for Confucian scholars. They're looking for rocket scientists. They're looking for people who can. They're looking for engineers and scientists and bioengineers and computer IT people. So you have you know, a deeply rooted examination state, which has said what matters to us now is not classical learning, it's economically relevant um, scientific learning. And they're doing that, they're also creating a system of political meritocracy, whereby they move people up the political order, partly on the basis of, you know, their, their academic achievements on the basis of their performance. They have lots of performance metrics for everybody in, in, in positions of power. So imagine a world in which China is evolving into a really big version of Singapore. And imagine a world in which America continues to dilute its admissions into elite institutions Gets rid of its gifted school programs, gets rid of its selective schools, and in which basically you have a a wokeified plutocracy sitting at the top, ladders of upward mobility disappearing, a little bit of compensation through affirmative action, but certainly not a comprehensive uh, meritocratic system across the country. Imagine those two civilizations in conflict, and it's not difficult to see that the. It's not
0: difficult, and and Adrian, with your knowledge of history, you. You point back to Venice as oh, yeah. uh, as the the nightmarish conclusion. It's not, of course, Thomas Mann's death in Venice, but you pick out the fate of the Venetian Republic as um, as a warning that we could become like Venice if we don't get this thing right.
1: We're, we're, we're rapidly becoming like Venice, I think. Well, what what you had in Venice? Venice became the most you know, one of the most successful cities the world has ever seen because it had an unusually open elite which recruited people from below um, and which had constant circulation of people going in and out of the elite. And it had, instead of a monarch, it had a doge who was elected, things like that. Then what happens at the end of the Middle Ages is they decided to have a great freezing of that elite. All the names of people in the elite were written in a book of gold. Um, And the families then inherited their position. And I think we're beginning to get a repeat of that in the modern West, that the upward mobility is freezing. The names of people in, in the oligarchy are beginning to become weary, wearily familiar. The one thing that we do now is have a bit of pro forma affirmative action in the West, but that's always on the terms of the people who actually have power rather than uh, in the context of a relentless system of social mobility all over the place. Now, Venice, fortunately, was one of the most beautiful cities in the world. So as it declined and decayed, it still managed to be fantastically beautiful. What you might have in America is a whole bunch of, you know, decay in which the monuments to your former glory are
0: um sort of <laughs> my <form> of glory <laughs> yeah form it's, of right, glory. it's like the planet of the apes when we exactly.
1: uh, uh yeah so, and things like that whatever silicon valley is it's not exactly the, the you know a, a, a i one don't one. know
0: if they'll ever be it's um hard. i'm not sure if we'll ever be nostalgia certainly for the architecture of silicon valley adrian yeah, waldridge yeah. your new book the aristocracy of talent how meritocracy made the modern world Always on the cutting edge, always talking uh, about the most important subjects and never taking the easy position, always pushing your reader and yourself as you do in all your writing, uh, both in your books and your, and, 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 um, and your journalism. Congratulations on the new book. You are talking to me from the Suffolk, Suffolk Downs, is it? Uh, no, Sussex, not the Hampshire, but the, the, the South Downs. Hampshire Downs, lovely uh, part of the world in a kind of post-COVID world. In addition to your new book, um, Aristocracy of Talent to uh, Adrian, what else should people be reading? Do they need to go back uh, to Plato? Um, should they be reading Michael uh, Young's The Rise of the Meritocracy? Perhaps uh, revisiting your colleague uh, Edmund Fawcett's Liberalism and Conservative? What else should people be reading? I, I, I definitely uh,
1: encourage people to read all of those books. Edmund's book is, is two books are great. Uh, Michael Young's book is a fantastic book. I mean, it's it's, it's a very weird book, but also incredibly thought-provoking. Um, and I do think, uh, I hate to say this, but I do think Plato's Republic is one of those books which just rewards reading and reading and reading again. And the other thing I'm reading at the moment, I don't want to sound too pretentious, but I'm reading Aristotle's Politics, which is not as beautiful a book as Plato's Republic, but it's full of fantastic stuff. And one of the things he argues in that book is that every sort of, politics has a sort of um, a dark side. So kingship has tyranny, democracy has populism, and, oligarch- and aristocracy has oligarchy. And I rather think that we've passed in the United States, and to some extent in Britain, from the bright side of meritocracy to the dark side of meritocracy, and our task is to push back into the bright side of meritocracy, because we, we're seeing a lot of things that worry me very profoundly at the moment.
0: Well, I think we can push back when we read books like yours, which I think are very fair and balanced and deeply historical on this subject. Adrian, congratulations on the book. Keep well, have fun uh, in southern England, and we'll talk again very soon. Thank you,
1: and and, and the same to you, and enjoy and, and enjoy the rest of your day.